Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, the Chicago Black Sox and the 1919 World Series. Now let's get back to our story about the Chicago Black Sox. Publicly, it would be months before any incriminating information about the Black Sox became definitive. Privately, however, it would only be a matter of days before the team's ownership would be confronted with concrete facts about a fix. Driven by guilt, his wife, or a belief that if he came clean and returned the money, all would be forgiven, Joe Jackson requested a meeting with Charles Comiskey on the day after the series ended. The de facto general manager of the team, Harry Grabner, had an idea about what Jackson wanted to discuss, and he told Jackson to go home to Savannah, and Grabner would meet with him there to discuss Jackson's 1920 contract. Charles Comiskey already realized that a scandal of this nature, if made public, could have dire financial consequences to his franchise, and he hoped to cover up any specific details until the rumors dissipated. Unfortunately, Grabner and Comiskey would be confronted with other immediate allegations from White Sox fans who were acquaintances of Kid Gleason. They alleged that a prominent St. Louis business owner named Harry Redman was present when a fix was proposed to the eight Black Sox, including Weaver and Jackson. Redmond was irate as the confusing nature of some of the games had cost him over $5,000 that he had bet on the White Sox. On October 12th, Redmond would tell the story directly to Gleason and Grabner, also implicating St. Louis Browns second baseman Joe Gedeon as a go-between and alleging that Bill Burns and Abe Attell as the gamblers offering the Sox $15,000 a game for each loss. Only four days after the series ended, Charles Comiskey knew that keeping the lid on such a scandal would be impossible. He resolved to try and control this mushrooming crisis and preserve his own facade of righteousness. He involved his personal attorney, Alfred Austrian, in devising a press release that not only attempted to tamp down rumors, but also offered a $20,000 reward for any concrete information concerning any player's impropriety. While publicly Comiskey dismissed any rumors concerning Gedeon and Redmond, there is evidence that $10,000 eventually made its way via Grabner and Austrian to St. Louis to reimburse the gamblers who threatened to go public with specifics about a fix. Comiskey also decided that it was essential that he get the actual specifics as to who had been involved in a fix and what exactly that entailed. Through private detectives, he eventually got circumstantial confirmation of a conspiracy and verification of the players possibly involved, but also assurances that actually proving such behavior would be impossible as long as the players kept quiet. Comiskey resolved to do nothing further. 
The White Sox owner caught a break in early January when Red Sox owner Harry Frazee agreed to sell Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. This spectacular trade dominated the baseball headlines and distracted fans from speculating about a possible series fix. It was especially timely because only weeks before, Hugh Fullerton, now employed by the New York World, wrote the first widely read expose that specifically alleged that the series was fixed by gamblers. Surprisingly, Fullerton's allegation, which had proliferated in locker and bar rooms across the United States, was derided by the establishment baseball press as reckless and preposterous. Although Fullerton would eventually earn credit for being ahead of the journalistic curve on the Black Sox story, another journalist had already published specific names of the conspirators as early as October 25th. Frank Klein, writing in the new and obscure Chicago gambling publication, Collier's Eye identified Seacott, Williams, Felsch, and Risberg as responsible for, quote, throwing the series, unquote. Unfortunately, this prescient observation also included the oft-repeated fable that Seacott was angry over being denied a bonus in 1917 after he failed to win 30 games, the result of Comiskey deliberately benching him at the end of the season. This assertion would be repeated in Eight Men Out as the fundamental reason for Seacott's anger and fixed participation. Unfortunately, a simple perusal of Seacott's September pitching records in both 1917 and 1919 indicate that he had every opportunity to win 30, especially in 1919 with the Sox not actually clinching the pennant until the last days of the season and Seacott getting a no decision in his last two starts of the month. In 1917, Seacott would pitch throughout the month of September, right up until the second-to-last day of the season. In fact, neither the bonus or the Comiskey Directive ever existed. Somehow, White Sox management rode out the storm, and the 1920 season began with the team lineup mostly intact and the fans focused on a new year. Predictably, Chick Gandel had not returned, making good on his promise to remain in California after holding out for a substantial raise. He played semi-pro ball, far from any potential fallout, although it was common knowledge that he had purchased a new house in the offseason. This development was probably the key to the mystery of what exactly happened to whatever money was paid out to try and fix the series. The players could never tell who was deceiving them, Gandal or the gamblers. Publicly, most of the players would initially deny receiving any money but eventually it was determined either by eventual admission or Comiskey's detective work that Seacott got $10,000, Williams and Jackson got $5,000 apiece, Swede Risberg got $10,000, Felsch got $5,000. Most likely this would have come from the $80,000 that Sullivan initially promised and probably paid to Gandal. There had to have been a substantial payment made to Gandal at some point to have paid even $35,000 out to his teammates. Keeping the rest would have allowed him to walk away from baseball, which is exactly what he did. Gandal's absence did nothing to close the rift between the Collins clique and the remaining Black Sox, but the defending AL champs contended throughout the 1920 season. By late September, both Seacott and Williams had over 20 wins. Joe Jackson was hitting 382, and Buck Weaver and Happy Felsch were also hitting well over 300. Ultimately, a circuitous sequence of events brought the Black Sox into the glare of public scrutiny. Rumors of a fixed game between two teams well out of the National League pennant race, the Cubs and Phillies, so distressed Cubs owner Bill Veck that he requested an investigation by the sitting Cook County Grand Jury. 
Coincidentally, the presiding judge, Charles McDonald, was a rabid baseball fan and a friend of Ban Johnson. Although the grand jury was investigating a specific Cubs-Phillies game, journalists began to demand an investigation into the allegations concerning the 1919 fix. With Ban Johnson's blessing, McDonald decided to hear testimony from involved parties, but initially most of the witnesses discussed the Phillies-Cubs debacle or were White Sox bettors who lost money on the fix. But then an explosive interview with gambler Billy Maharg appeared in a September 27th edition of a Philadelphia newspaper. Maharg told the whole story of he and Bill Burns' attempts to fix the series, the double cross by Abe Attell, the promise of $100,000, the partial payment of ten grand, and the pivotal role of Eddie Seacott. Maharg also explained that he and Burns had lost everything on Game 3 after Chick Gandel assured them that the Sox would bag the game. The article prompted a national sensation and desperation damage control from Charles Comiskey. The Sox were in the middle of a three-day break before their final games of the season, the 1920 pennant still hanging in the balance. Comiskey and Austrian responded to the Maharg article by suspending all seven alleged conspirators, but also decided on the additional PR strategy of delivering some of the key players to the grand jury with predetermined testimony. They wished to convey the impression that Comiskey wanted to get to the bottom of a conspiracy he had tried to cover up for almost a year. The two men personally asked manager Kid Gleason which of the seven men was most likely to spill his guts and come clean. Gleason responded that he believed that Eddie Seacott, uncharacteristically sullen and withdrawn all season, was deeply ashamed of what he had done and was the most likely candidate to tell the truth. Seacott was summoned to Austrian's law office and quickly informed by Comiskey, Austrian, and Gleason that they knew all about the fix and his role and that he better come clean. Within minutes, Seacott was introduced to Hartley Replogle, the assistant state's attorney leading the investigation. Replogle played bad cop to Austrian's good cop, threatening the White Sox pitcher with jail and a heavy fine if he didn't tell everything he knew in open court. Quickly, and without consulting an attorney, Seacott not only signed a statement admitting guilt, he also signed a waiver of immunity. This despite Austrian's assertion that he would get off without jail or fine if he came clean. Seacott allegedly wept as he told of the $10,000 bribe that he took before the series even began. He was immediately conveyed to the grand jury chambers by Comiskey's limousine, but not before he was handed a written notice of his suspension. Replogle got Seacott to actually sign another waiver of immunity before his actual testimony in front of the grand jury, in which he publicly admitted his role in the conspiracy and the receipt of a $10,000 bribe. But he did maintain that despite the money, he played to win both games that he lost. Joe Jackson was next. Having heard that he was wanted in the offices of Alfred Austrian for a meeting with Charles Comiskey, Jackson began drinking heavily. Still intoxicated by the time Kid Gleason picked him up, Jackson still had the presence of mind to demand an attorney. Austrian ultimately talked him into testifying without a lawyer and made the same assurances that he made to Seacott, Jackson also signing a waiver of immunity in front of the grand jury. After meeting personally in chambers with an intimidating Judge McDonald, Jackson then testified that he was promised $20,000 to throw the series, that he got 5000 from Lefty Williams, that he was aware of the Warren Hotel meeting, and that he twice asked Chick Gandel for money after White Sox losses. However, he also adamantly claimed that he played to win at all times in every game of the series. Jackson's ordeal was over by late afternoon. A great crowd was assembled on the steps of the courthouse. 
Although he would deny it ever happened, it is at this point that Shoeless Joe was allegedly confronted by a small boy who asked if the rumors sweeping the city about a fix were true. Say it ain't so, Joe, the child supposedly pleaded. Jackson could only hang his head in shame and admit the truth. Like most such theatrical moments, this was a journalistic invention that became too good a story not to repeat, but it did sum up public shock over the scandal that was growing bigger by the hour. The next day, Lefty Williams was maneuvered in front of the grand jury, confirming what Seacott and Jackson had already admitted, and fingering Gandal as the main organizer of the conspiracy. Thousands of miles away, Gandal denied the charges, and even added the stories about the fix itself were, quote, bunk, unquote. Buck Weaver also strenuously denied even knowledge of the conspiracy, and upon getting his letter of suspension, immediately went to Comiskey to plead unsuccessfully for his job back. Without the newly suspended Black Sox, the Clean Sox would battle for the pennant until the last weekend of the season, eventually losing to the Cleveland Indians. The grand jury indicted all eight Black Sox players and eventually added Sports Sullivan, Nat Evans, A. Battelle, Bill Burns, and Hal Chase, a notorious former major leaguer and baseball fixer already expelled from baseball, to the indictment. Arnold Rothstein's name was conspicuously absent from the indictment, and publicly the big bankroll claimed that he actually lost $6,000 on the series. Rothstein's attorney, William Fallon, artfully worked behind the scenes to ensure that this remained the case. Eventually, both the players' written signed confessions and immunity waivers disappeared, a theft historically attributed to bribery organized by Rothstein via his attorney. This was only one development that weakened the prosecution's case. Even after a separate grand jury re-indicted the defendants, the media speculated that the case might never come to trial. Of the 18 initially charged conspirators, six would eventually be dropped without prosecution. All of the seven most prominent indicted White Sox lawyered up, renounced their confessions, and denied their participation in a conspiracy. Only dogged pursuit of Bill Burns, funded by Ban Johnson and assisted by Billy Maharg, saved the case, the gambler finally agreeing to appear and testify. The trial began on July 18, 1921, and the first witness to appear was Charles Comiskey. The defense's expert attorneys were able to document Comiskey's penurious treatment of his players, an irrelevant legal issue, but an emotional appeal to a blue-collar jury. The star witness, Bill Burns, then outlined his involvement in the conspiracy, adding the revelation that Chick Gandal told him after Game 3 that the Sox were through with the conspiracy. Under cross-examination, Burns admitted that he had received financial support from Ban Johnson, but he was a convincing witness who remained calm in the face of the defense's attempt to discredit him and his story. The players' confessions were eventually ruled admissible, but this process was so tedious that the initial bombshell effect was completely lost on a jury that resented legal minutiae in the face of a sweltering July heat. There was so little evidence presented about the roles of Buck Weaver and Happy Felsch that before deliberations even began, the judge indicated that he would throw out any verdict of guilty for the two players. The defense was also able to discredit Burns' description of the conspiracy by having clean Sox players testify that certain crooked players were present at practices or team meetings when the gambler claimed they were meeting with him. Not only did this present reasonable doubt, it was clear that only ball players were being prosecuted in a conspiracy that also involved powerful underworld criminals like Rothstein. The judge's final charge to the jury also required that the defendants engaged in a specific intent to defraud, a very high standard of guilt. 
Charged at 8.30 at night, the jury took less than three hours to reach a decision. At 11.30, the clerk began reading the verdicts, starting with Lefty Williams. Not guilty on all counts, the courtroom excitedly reacting with every acquittal. The players were actually carried out of the courtroom in triumph, and they celebrated well into the night with members of the jury. Unfortunately for the Black Sox, a process had already begun that would dampen civic jubilation and condemn the players in perpetuity. Baseball ownership was already deeply concerned with its image as a sport compromised by gamblers, the Black Sox merely one of a string of incidents that cast a shadow over the integrity of the game. Players like Chick Gandel and many others socialized with and exchanged information with known high rollers and players even casually bet on baseball games through friends or relatives. The owners were also deeply unhappy with the leadership provided by the Ban Johnson-dominated commission that administered the game. Understanding that gambling was currently inextricably tied to baseball, various owners proposed hiring Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, a federal judge as the commissioner of the sport. Landis was probably the most well-known judge in America, having famously fined John D. Rockefeller $29 million in a previous antitrust decision. Although this fine would be thrown out on appeal, Landis gained the reputation as a fearless and tough-minded jurist of impeccable reputation and was additionally a rabid baseball fan. Initially, Landis was hired to lead a new commission, but eventually it was agreed that he would be appointed sole commissioner with unlimited power and a huge raise over his federal salary. Early on August 3, 1921, the day after the defendants were acquitted and amidst public expectations of immediate reinstatement, Commissioner Landis issued an absolute decree. Quote, regardless of the verdict of juries, no player that throws a ball game, no player that undertakes or promises to throw a ball game, no player that sits in a conference with a bunch of crooked players and gamblers where the ways and means of throwing games are planned and discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it, will ever play professional baseball, unquote. Today, almost 100 years later, all eight of these Chicago White Sox remain permanently banned, their statistics expunged from the official record. This expulsion also affected even consideration for the Baseball Hall of Fame, a punishment that definitely affected Joe Jackson and possibly eliminated Eddie Seacott and Buck Weaver as well. The most prominent member of the Black Sox adopted a nonchalant attitude. Shoeless Joe was quoted, I'm through with organized baseball, hinting that he would be just fine with his outside business interests, which would be as lucrative as Major League Baseball. But Jackson, like all of the other Black Sox, would attempt to participate in barnstorming leagues or exhibition games throughout the South and Midwest, and several times a banished player, especially Jackson, would be close to inking a deal with an established minor league or team and the long arm of Judge Landis would intercede, threatening to also ban for life from the major leagues any player who played in a game with the suspended players. Most of the players would eventually acknowledge that their organized baseball careers were over and get on with their civilian lives. Although Joe Jackson would play well into his 40s, eventually even under his real name, he appeared more as a novelty act in remote semi-pro fields in the Deep South. Their Major League Baseball careers clearly over, four of the Black Sox, including Jackson, sued the White Sox for back pay, citing wrongful termination. Jackson's suit was the first to go to trial in early 1924, and well-coached and endearing, it looked as if the jury would easily find in his favor. 
but the trial judge was so incensed at Jackson's testimony, which contradicted his statements to the Cook County Grand Jury over 100 times, that upon dismissing the jury for deliberations, he found him guilty of perjury, locked him up on the spot, and imposed a $5,000 bond. Jackson bailed out of jail immediately, in time to hear the jury find in his favor and award him $16,711 in back pay and interest. Unfortunately, the judge, John Gregory, immediately threw out the verdict and the award, ending Jackson's civil case and prompting the other litigants, Risberg, Felsch, and Weaver, to settle their case for far less than the amount of their contracts. Ironically, one of the heroes of the Black Sox saga, Dickie Carr, was eventually banned from baseball himself after a contract dispute over money with Charles Comiskey. Carr refused to take a cut in pay, and when he held out and then signed with a semi-pro team for the 1922 season, Commissioner Landis suspended him from Major League Baseball for violating the reserve clause, the contractual hold that a team had over a player, which bound that player to the club in perpetuity, unless the player was traded or released. Carr pitched throughout the U.S., but eventually asked to be reinstated late in the 1925 season. By then he was washed up and the Sox would release him after the season was over. Carr would achieve historical respect as a manager for his decision to encourage a 19-year-old pitcher in the Cardinals organization to focus on hitting after an injury to the young player's pitching arm in 1940, practically adopting the player and allowing his young family to live in his home while managing him in the Florida State League, Carr would be an integral factor in developing and encouraging one of the greatest players in Major League history, Stan Musial. Although Landis's draconian punishment addressed the specific scandal surrounding the Black Sox, it did not keep the sport free from controversy surrounding gambling. Perhaps because an expansion of the stain of gambling might inhibit the disgrace of his conduct, in 1927, Swede Risberg spoke to the Chicago Tribune about games allegedly rigged for money in the 1917 season. With the White Sox fighting for the pennant and set to play two late-season doubleheaders against the Tigers, who were out of it, a collection was taken up and promised to key Tiger players if they lost the four games, which they did. Risberg was officially interrogated by Landis, who subsequently ruled that no fixing had occurred, sweeping the allegations under the rug. The last thing that organized baseball wanted was to revisit the gambling-riddled period that led up to the 1919 scandal. Most of the gamblers involved with the fix would fade into obscurity and disappear from the public eye, with one notable exception. Because of his association with the Black Sox scandal, Arnold Rothstein publicly announced in 1921 that he would divest himself of any interest in gambling and the gaming operations that he previously operated. However, Rothstein continued to participate in various illicit schemes, including narcotics distribution, bootlegging, and racketeering. He also continued to personally gamble, not always successfully. After losing over $300,000 in a poker game in September 1928, Rothstein refused to pay claiming that the game was rigged by a hoodlum named George McManus. In November of 1928, Rothstein showed up at another poker game at Manhattan's Park Central Hotel. Hump McManus was present and angrily shot him after a confrontation over the unpaid debt. Rothstein made it out of the room but eventually died on November 6, 1928. McManus was acquitted after a half-hearted prosecution without many tears shed for the big bankroll. 
The blight of the Black Sox scandal also permanently altered the later years of Charles Comiskey. With the core of his team permanently banned, the White Sox owner knew that his team would fall out of contention, which they immediately did. It would be 40 years before the 1959 Chicago White Sox even made it back to the World Series, only to be crushed by the Los Angeles Dodgers, and not until 2005 that the White Sox would win a World's Championship 86 years after the 1919 disaster. Perhaps depressed and embarrassed by the Black Sox scandal, Comiskey would hand over management to Harry Grabner and the Comiskey children. Commie, as he was known, spent much of the summer at his vacation home in Wisconsin. He would die of a heart attack in 1931, age 71, by then a tottering old man who no longer resembled the powerhouse tycoon who dominated Major League Baseball with the best team in the league. And the players themselves? Perhaps the most poignant member of the Black Sox was Buck Weaver, who would continually attempt to be reinstated in all imploring first Commissioner Landis and then his successor Happy Chandler for vindication on six occasions, all to no avail. Even after Weaver's death in 1956, journalists and his relatives would continue to argue with official baseball on his behalf, most publicly before the White Sox appearance in the 2005 World Series. Through the years, other Black Sox players would appear in the media, some very publicly like Eddie Seacott, who in an interview was quite contrite. Everybody who has ever lived has committed sins of their own. I've tried to make up for it by living as clean a life as I could. I'm proud of the way I've lived, and I think my family is too. Others, like Chick Gandel, were predictably obtuse, Gandel claiming in a ghost-written 1956 Sports Illustrated article that not only did the Black Sox not throw the series, he personally didn't receive any money. He also repeatedly described Buck Weaver as very much involved in planning the conspiracy, perhaps a vindictive attempt to deliberately prevent Weaver from reinstatement. By the time Gandel, retired and living in Calistoga, California, died in 1970, his local obituary listed him as a plumber, and his Napa Valley neighbors had no idea about his scandalous past. He was so obscure that official baseball would not report his death for three months. The last Black Sox player to pass away was Swede Risberg in October of 1975. Like many of the Black Sox, he ultimately relocated to California along with Gandal, Lefty Williams, and Fred McMullen, far away from the bad memories of Chicago. Ironically, the first to go in 1951 was Joe Jackson, who suffered with heart disease for many years. He lived the last years of his life operating a liquor store in Greenville, South Carolina, where he was revered despite the Black Sox episode. Jackson, because of his prominence, would never cease being a public figure. His rationalizations and continuing alterations to the account of his role in the fix ingratiated him with the public, but had no effect on institutional baseball's refusal to forgive him officially. To this day, Jackson's guilt and the conduct of the other alleged Black Sox during the 1919 series remains a matter of debate. The entire Pete Rose affair has also unfortunately added more controversy to what could have been a nostalgic nod of forgiveness to a player of the stature of Jackson. Unfortunately, it would be awfully difficult for the sport to reinstate one player and not the other, a public relations bridge too far. For the moment, Shoeless Joe, Knuckles, Lefty, the Swede, Buck, Happy, Chick, and Fred exist in baseball purgatory. Their careers and statistical accomplishments exiled to an external field of dreams.
Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about the Chicago Black Sox. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Betrayal, the 1919 World Series and the Birth of Modern Baseball by Charles Fountain. Fall from Grace, The Truth and Tragedy of Shoeless Joe Jackson by Tim Hornbaker. Eight Men Out by Elliot Asinoff and the Society for American Baseball Research journal article 1919 Baseball Salaries and the Mythically Underpaid Chicago White Sox by Bob Hoy. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.